Yeah, Jimmy, you missed a lot. I'm telling you, Captain Gordon and Ozaki need to tighten security around here. The Shobujin are bringing their own bodyguards with them when they visit now. I don't blame them either. But what I still can't believe... <sighs> I asked Gary if I could at least tell you, and he said that was okay. But the Church of Mothrianity's weirdo leader? He's Gary's twin brother. You were weirdly prepared to play that. He already told you, huh? Okay. But did he tell you how it happened? Very funny, Jimmy. <sighs> no, apparently Gary and Jerry's father is an American soldier who was stationed in Germany years ago. The guy hooked up with a Rolissican college girl who went to Berlin looking for a good time, which she obviously had with him. A year later, she contacted his dad and said she had twins. Things got complicated, and when his dad was sent back to the U.S., he took Gary, but Jerry stayed in Rolissica with their mother. Gary tells me he saw his brother a few times growing up, and they even went to the same boarding school for a while. He says Jerry fell in with a weirdo radical group that engaged in perverse hero worship of Clark Nelson despite the destruction he brought on Rolissica. But Gary doesn't know if or when Jerry formed this cult. You're welcome. But apparently this revelation had no effect on how my very confused pseudo-sister feels about Gary. She doesn't know. Tell me about it. If she ever figures herself out, she might be dangerous. Regardless, let's hope Mr. Most Ridiculously Pretentious Name Ever and his not-so-merry band of weirdos stay in Rolissica. Anyway, before John gets here, I'll check my email. Hmm. Did you see this, Jimmy? Mr. Gold just sent out a press release saying the island's beaches are closed today. But it doesn't say why. Odd indeed. Oh? I also have a message from Elsie Chapman. It says she wants me to meet with Heed on the beach later today. She says they have something confidential to show me. It says you can come too. That's what you get for buying from AliExpress, my dude. Did you actually take Kaiju Kim's advice and start using that hunk of junk Mogura for Uber rides? So now the name does have a double meaning. Although the scale tipped in favor of one over the other. Oh well, it's honest money. Alright Jimmy, send John in. And play nice! Live from the KIJU studios in beautiful Ogasawara, this is The Monster Island Film Vault, episode 60, John LeMay versus Them! Hello, Kai! 
Kaiju lovers, and welcome to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through Tokusatsu. I am your host, Nate March, and the film curator here on Monster Island. Yes, and that's my intrepid producer, Jimmy from NASA, who, for once, apparently, didn't get himself into quite as much trouble with the guest today, which is kind of funny because he has a little bit of a history with my guest today, which is also interesting because today's movie has close ties for him because he hails from the state in which the film takes place. And yes, I am talking about my... <laughs> <laughs> about a man who gets referenced in basically every episode I do, that is Kaiju and Tokusatsu scholar John LeMay. Hey, Nate. What's going on? Ah, it's going great. It's going great. I'm glad to see you here. <laughs> well, it, it, it wasn't easy. You know, today there's a lot of hoops to, mm-hmm. to jump through. Jimmy was convinced that I hadn't had my Matango booster yet, but I had. Uh, it was a whole thing. And then, then we had to argue for like an hour whether you had to eat the mushrooms to get it or if you can breathe in the spores. Ah. And it was, it, you, know, you know, it's better, yeah. It's yeah. better to argue in person than online, though. I'll oh, say that. Well, most definitely. Uh, I may have to put you in contact with Dr. Dorif. He's our resident Matongo expert. In fact, I think he's the only guy who has gone back to Matongo Island in the last, well, we're pushing, what, 60 years now? Uh, No one else has the Hmm. guts to go there. But I'm not sure. I I feel like he's basically been uh, become immune to the Matongo because he's been around them so much, but I also think he went insane because of it. It's kind of weird. Mm, yeah, it's definitely. a trade-off, I guess. So if there's talk about boosters and all of that, uh, given the the state of Doctor Dorf's mind, I think I'd be a little hesitant. Mm. Well, it's too late now. Yeah, it is uh, <coughs> definitely too late. Oh, you got a cough there. I'm a little worried. Yeah. Oh, calm down, Jimmy. I don't think he's going to be spreading anything around here. <laughs> Uh, except knowledge, right? Uh, I don't have any of that today either. I, I know like next to nothing about them. <laughs> about them? Them? Yeah. Because that's them. how you have to say it. <laughs> okay, that's the only cool thing I can tell you about the movie is like when you watch it, obviously the whole thing's in black and white except for the title. Mm-hmm. is in blood red letters. And that's because uh, for a while they were going to film it in 3D and in color. And instead, you just get that color title that kind of looks like it's in 3D. And then they have a Mm -hmm. few shots that you can kind of tell might have been staged for 3D. And Mm -hmm. they just didn't do it. And that's Mm -hmm. that's literally all I got. (laughs) Sorry. Well, this is either going to be a very short episode or... Uh, well, I guess we'll have to find out. Now, you do have some firsthand knowledge, like I said, because you are from New Mexico. In fact, you live in Roswell. That's a fun fact. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Roswell is only about two hours from uh, the setting of the the film's like first two acts, which are in like the Trinity site at Alamogordo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, yep. yeah, I've driven by there quite a bit, yep. and uh, yep. it, you know, yeah, I can tell they did not film it there. But I'm not one of those people who gets all angry that the movie's not realistic because had you filmed it at Trinity site, it would just literally be white sand with no cactus or vegetation, and, and um. 
that opening shot, you know, where they're in the plane and they sight the little girl, you know, it, I feel like it's, it's better with the big cactus around her cause she kind of blends into them. So, mm-hmm. you know, again, I'm not one of those purists, you know, I'm, I'm more uh, practical so I can see why they shot it. I assume in the deserts of California where they've got those big cactus. So, but yeah, it, it is set in my neck of the woods, which is one of the reasons why I really like it. Well, we're jumping ahead of ourselves a little bit there because first things first, I need to let everybody know that this is part of MIFV's season theme this year, which is America, 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 America. America, I do. Yes, this is part of our series on American-made kaiju films, which does include them, which for a lot of people is the best example of, well, a couple of, I guess you could say, subgenres here, one being the Big Bug movie and the other one being Atomic Mutations, Atomic Monsters which were very common in the 1950s. You can thank Beast from 20,000 Fathoms for that. <laughs> yeah, this movie came out the very next year, so I think it's no no coincidence. Mm-hmm. And also the same year as the original Godzilla, which is also very interesting. That's right, and I, I assume we'll, we'll also talk about how much this movie influenced Rodan later too, right? Oh, really? Well, actually, I did an episode on Rodan, so I did mention that the uh, the ants in this might have been inspirations for the Meganulon. Yeah, well, I think absolutely it's a given, obviously, like you just said, the ants influenced the Meganulon. But what I had forgotten about is that uh, midway through them, they do the whole UFO thing where people are seeing, you know, quote unquote UFOs and they turn out to be the giant monster. So I guess Rodan kind of stole that from them as well, which I thought was really interesting. I, I had no idea. Yeah, we'll get into that in a little bit. But first, I have to read the entertaining info dump, which my intrepid producer over there is so kind to write for us, although now I'm not contractually obligated to read it. Now it's just MIFV tradition. So let's get that out of the way so we can make sure that everybody else is on the same page regarding this film. The giant Camponitus vicinus are a vicious and warlike colony of huge ants mutated by radiation from atomic bomb tests. They established colonies in the New Mexico desert and the L.A. sewer in order to survive and reproduce. Workers attack any and all intruders to protect the colonies and also scavenge for food. The queen lays eggs to propagate the colony. The heroic and determined Sergeant Ben Peterson is a New Mexico police officer investigating strange happenings and deaths, which leads to the discovery of the ants. He accompanies the scientists as they seek to destroy the colonies, often rescuing others trapped by the massive insects. Dr. Harold Medford is an intelligent but easily annoyed myrmecologist sent by the Department of Agriculture to uncover the truth of what's happening in the desert. Once the ants are found, he advocates for their destruction and helps spearhead operations against them. His daughter, the brilliant and feisty Dr. Pat Medford, acts as something of a liaison between her father and the other characters. She shares his determination to destroy the monsters and will not take crap from anyone who underestimates her. 
The brave and gun-toting FBI agent Robert Graham at first assists the police in their investigation, but later leads operations to destroy the ants. He also tries to flirt with Pat without much luck. Aside from the most minimal of subplots, the human and kaiju plotlines are unified. The characters are constantly responding to whatever the ants are doing or trying to take action against them throughout the entire film. The gigantic ants are the problem. Peterson and Bedford blind a worker ant by shooting its antennae with a pistol and kill it with a machine gun. Cyanide gas bombs are tossed into the underground colony, but Pat's investigation afterward reveals two queens were hatched and escaped. Off-camera, the brood spreads as far as Texas and some attack a freighter in the Pacific before it is sunk by the U.S. Navy. A new colony is discovered below Los Angeles, and the city is put under martial law. Troops are sent in, and they descend into the sewers to destroy the nest. Peterson finds two missing boys and dies rescuing them. Bram is trapped when a tunnel collapses and fends off ants with a machine gun. The problem is solved by the U.S. military. The soldiers locate the queen and her hatchlings and kill them with flamethrowers. The script by Ted Sherderman and Russell Hughes, which was adapted from a story treatment by George Worthing Yates, is a simple and straightforward thriller with a tight plot and a handful of major characters. The ants were realized using four massive puppets, two partial and two full-size models. Thanks to clever cinematography and editing, most of the puppets' limitations and imperfections were hidden. The filmmakers use this in conjunction with excellent sound design to create the illusion of a brood despite never having more than three ants on screen at a time. The puppets themselves were well articulated and controlled by off-camera technicians supervised by Ralph Ayers. They were painted purplish green on set to look best in the black and white photography. The film also makes use of location film uh, The movie also makes use of location filming and pyrotechnics. The overall package is very much an A picture despite the classic trappings of a B movie, no pun intended. This is a serious and often horrific film with an almost procedural style to its story, which gives it tremendous gravity. With its talk of radiation and ant behavior, among other things, it's a fantastical science fiction film. While science fiction films were gaining popularity in America at the time, The Beast in 20,000 Fathoms was the first quote-unquote atomic monster movie. Them broke new ground by using giant insects. The special effects were ambitious for their time and could have made or broke the film for audiences. That being said, it does have several familiar tropes, such as the wise old scientist and square-jawed hero. Even so, Them establishes style by being the first quote-unquote big bug movie. It released at a moment when science fiction films like this were still taken seriously and allotted generous budgets. A slew of B-movie imitators would follow throughout the 1950s and beyond. The film was made to tap into the science fiction film craze at the time and build off the success of Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. As such, it was meant to entertain a general movie-going audience. While budget figures are unavailable, the film was one of Warner Brothers' most successful films of 1954, with some sources claiming it was the studio's highest-grossing film of the year, earning $2.2 million or $23.2 million in 2022 money. It was generally liked by contemporary critics and remains well-liked and respected among film historians, classic film buffs, and science fiction fans alike, among others. Several forces are at play in the film. Youth and age clash with Dr. Harold Medford's arguably unnecessary secrecy and his annoyance at the younger character's demands to know more than he is willing to tell. 
Humanity's right to exist stands against the ant's instincts to survive. Sanity and insanity conflict briefly when the characters visit a mental hospital to hear an inmate's report of quote-unquote ant-shaped UFOs. The Ellenson girl is locked inside her own mind by PTSD after seeing her family slaughtered by the ants, and she is only brought out by hypnotism. The safety of two boys is viewed as less important than protecting the world from the ant brood, although Peterson insists that the children should be saved. Several themes are in the film. Implicitly, saving humanity is valued above gains in scientific knowledge when it comes to the ants since none of the characters consider any option other than destroying the ants. Those in authority, scientists and soldiers, are shown to be clever problem solvers. Characters like Peterson and Graham frequently risk their lives to save others, with Peterson dying heroically to save the two boys. Pat is shown to be a strong, capable, and professional woman, which was progressive for the time. While science created the problem of huge ants, it also solves the problem. The film ends with this ambivalent admonishment from Dr. Harold Medford. When man entered the atomic age, he opened the door to a new world. What we may eventually find in that new world, nobody can predict. Alrighty, now that we're on the same page, let's have some Toku talk. Alrighty, so the, uh, we'll start off with that. I actually did make note of that, John, that you were talking about the, uh, the whole UFO thing, like in Rodan. I can't help but wonder if the same incident that contributed to that also contributed to this film as well. I'm sure you've heard about it, the Mantell UFO incident. Oh, yeah, I didn't think to connect that with them, but yeah, that could be. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. From 1948... The, if you want to learn more about that, listeners, go and listen to my episode on Rodan, which was just a couple episodes before this with Kaiju Kim. We did talk about that. That guy flying a fighter jet, thought he saw a UFO, tried to chase it down, and then his plane crashed. So <laughs> that was a little weird. We do have a point in this movie where the ants were growing some wings and flying around. So people were saying like, I saw a UFO and it looked like an ant. I'm sure that was uh, an interesting thing right there. <laughs> Not often that you yeah. hear UFOs be described as ants. Uh-uh. <laughs> Not... or, or pterodactyls, but, you know. Well, yeah, well, pteranodon. Let's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Toronto. I see. I caught it before Jimmy did. It's a good thing I caught <laughs> it. Yeah, yeah. Because he would have reminded you. You know, uh, Rodon, you know, Toronodon. Yeah, yeah. Mm, yeah. You're, you're, you're slipping, man. You're slipping. Uh, oh, I just realized I forgot to mention. Uh, I'll mention it now. Uh, the Toku topic for today. The Toku topic is going to be American nuclear tests in the 1940s and 50s, <laughs> which you can share a little bit about us because, again, you have connections to it because you live in New yeah. Mexico. So mm -hmm. my apologies for failing to mention that. I am, uh, so you're slipping as the scholar and I'm slipping as the host. Can you tell? It's just a, it's the Matongo. I guess we're all getting you know a little what? bit of it today. No joke. No, I did have Matongo and I got the Matongo brain fog. Uh, you know, even, even though I got the Matongo booster, I still got the Matongo. And oh, the, the brain man. fog though does kind of mess with you. Oh, man, man, yeah, that that is very true. Oh, man. Whew. But anyway, the, I, I'm going to get the, this joke out of the way. I'm just going to get it out of the way. <laughs> I can't help but wonder, 
And this joke's not original to me, but I can't help but wonder. You remember that Jordan Peele movie that came out a few years ago called Us? No, I've never seen it. I haven't seen it either, but it's a thing. I'm waiting for that weird crossover movie with this called Us versus Them. Mm. Ooh, or just us and them. Oh, yeah. us and them. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I was just, like I said, getting the joke out of the way here right now. So <laughs> it's funny because a lot of people, if you just tell them the premise of this movie, they might write it off as a Beeb movie. But I don't think this is a B movie. This is too good to be a B movie. I'm glad you said that because that is exactly what I was thinking as I watched it. Because, like, I watched this movie and I see so much money on the screen. Like, I see a giant ant prop and then in the in the foreground and in the background, there's, like, an actual helicopter flying around. I mean, that's, like, money. Yeah, there's money for sure being invested in this. And just the whole production is just too good to be a B-movie. It might be, you might consider it a B-movie plot. And there were imitators for this. What was it? The, what's the one with the giant grasshoppers? Remind me. Yeah. Beginning of the end. Beginning of the end. That's what it was. Yes. Yes. So there were B-movie imitators. uh, Recently, I wrote an essay for a guy who's publishing a book about giant bug movies, and he had me write it about the monster from Green Hell. That's a (laughs) B-movie. Yeah, I did one of those, too. I think I did, like, Son of Godzilla and Destroy All Monsters about Kumanga. Yeah. Ah, okay, okay. So, yeah, but this is too good for that. This is much too good for a B-movie. Which is kind of weird. It's kind of, I guess some people might call it a big budget B movie, but the acting's too good too. That's the thing. Everything yeah. about this is just too good. In fact, this is also a little bit atypical, I feel like, compared to a lot of B movies. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because uh, again, that was the first thing I thought when I watched it is people call this a B movie, but it's it's more of like whatever our modern equivalent would be. Like, I don't want to use Moonfall as the example cause, just because people kind of make fun of Roland Emmerich, but you know what I mean? Like, it's like, mm-hmm. It's like one of our big movies today, but just mm-hmm. in 1954. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's the other thing is that this movie takes itself very seriously. If they made something like this now, they'd be winking at the camera all the time because, like, yeah. oh, yeah. we know this is silly, right? Giant bugs. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> what are the what are the ants going to do? Ruin a uh, ruin a big picnic? <laughs> you know, but there's none of that. Yeah. There's none of that. Although that would be funny. The ant. I wonder, because we do have some giant ants here on the island. I wonder if they do try to ruin picnics for Godzilla and Gamera and all the rest of them. Yeah. And, and, you know, the other thing, too, I was thinking as I watched it, you know, for a movie in 1954, it was almost the start of kind of what you'd call the gross-out horror genre. Because, I mean, it is gross when they go into the nest and they've got the the egg husks and then... Yeah. yeah, this is genuinely horrifying at points. It really is. Like, I feel like for me, I think one of the images in this film that is just branded upon my brain and I will never forget it is when they're flying over the entrance to the first nest and you see one of the big ants standing right at the entrance to it and it has a, a rib cage in its mandibles and it just mm-hmm. drops it. You yeah. just see this mountain of skeletons. <laughs> yeah. at the base of the entrance. I'm like, oh, good Lord, that is genuinely terrifying. <laughs> well, and I was glad, too, that they made the decision to kill that heroic guy at the end that he gets actually bitten by the ant. I mean, that mm-hmm. sounds weird, but it's just as a writer, 
I could tell the story needed that, you know, needed some, some uh, consequences. So I was kind of glad that after he saves the mm-hmm. kids, the, the aunt just gets them and it gives the story a little more impact that way. Mm-hmm. Well, it's just like the whole thing. They work really hard to build tension throughout. That's the other thing that is, this is such a well-directed movie too. Yeah. I, I need to look up the the director here really quick, but he did a marvelous job here especially like that first act, that first 20 minutes, 20, 25 minutes, so much tension in this. A lot of atmosphere playing with the environment. The When we see the little girl and she can't talk, like she is so PTSD'd right now that she she can't even talk. She's basically been traumatized into silence. It's crazy. Jordan, du- no, excuse me, Gordon Douglas is his name. Is that a name that you are familiar with, John? It rings a bell, I'm gonna but I, I can't remember who it was. Yeah. yeah, let me look up what else he's done. Let me see. Oh, he worked for RKO. Huh. Yeah, let me see. Uh, see if there's anything here that I recognize. Roman Holiday. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Uh-huh, it was a short. The Devil with Hitler. That is a movie he directed. Hmm. <laughs> I wonder what that is now. <laughs> Uh, zombies on Broadway. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> that is another, that is a movie he did. Uh, zombies on Broadway. That's a heck of a title right there. <laughs> I was a communist for the FBI. <laughs> <laughs> the Iron Mistress. <laughs> oh my. Now we're getting to the stuff he did after this movie. Robin in the Seven Hoods. Yeah, that was a Frank Sinatra movie, so that's that's big time. Stagecoach, in like I, Flint. I've seen that one. I like it. Mm-hmm. He's got a fairly long filmography, but the, those are the the one the titles that look the most interesting <laughs> or noteworthy. Yeah, I think in like Flint, if I remember correctly, was one of the first movies that Chuck Norris was in. He was hmm. <laughs> he was just a goon in it. He gets beat up by the hero. But we all know Chuck was letting him win, obviously. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally. Just, you know, he's totally letting him win. But anyway, but what I was saying is there's so much tension throughout all of this. Uh, lots of great use of atmosphere. The sound design, especially in that first mm-hmm. act, is great uh, with the wind in the desert. Now, I confess, I've been to a lot of places, but I have not been to your neck of the woods, John. Is that what desert wind actually sounds like? Yeah, and we do get a lot of wind here. I mean, I mean I'm lucky in where I live. I'll never have to endure a hurricane. We we really aren't likely to get tornadoes here, but we do have I believe the technical term is haboob, which I think comes from the Middle East, but a haboob is like a big giant windstorm, sandstorm that just blows your house all night long and yeah. Yeah, so the, the so they use the wind to create some atmosphere, and then we have the noise. That's the thing that's great. I can't help but wonder if Spielberg didn't see this movie and that was an influence on how he did Jaws, because there's a little bit of a kind of a minimalist approach to this. Because mm-hmm. did you really? Here's a fun thing, John. I don't know if you noticed this. Did you notice you never see more than three of those ants on screen at once? Oh, I, I just assumed that was a budget issue, but I mean, that's kind of like Bruce the shark. Yeah, it never yeah, worked. Yeah, it's partly a budget thing. It's partly because of budget. 
I heard some sources that uh, when I was researching this said that they had three of those puppets. I saw another one that said that they had two. Oh, excuse me, that they had four. Two were partial puppets, and then they had two full puppets. Hmm. So they had to be very strategic with how they used them. But apparently you never see more of the more than three of them on screen at once, but the actors are working so hard selling you on the fact that this is a whole swarm that you forget that you only see three of them on screen at once. Yeah. And then, like I said, the sound design. Good grief, that sound design. That noise is just nerve-wracking. I don't think your garden variety ants make noises like that, but then again, they're so small, we probably can't hear them. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the, what's nuts. Because I was like, how in the heck did they make those sounds? They made the sounds by using bird calls. Hmm. Well, excuse me, bird-voiced tree frogs mixed. Oh, oh. They, they mixed them with bird calls. The wood thrush, the hooded warbler, and the red-bellied woodpecker. Hmm. And according to my source right here, they recorded all of this at Indian Island, Georgia, April 11th, 1947, hmm. at, the, at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Some very old school Foley right there. Just mix a bunch of stuff together. Yeah. Be surprised how often they do that. <laughs> Some people, unless they're really hardcore fans, may not realize that if you pay attention, the T-Rex roar in, in the Jurassic Park films, there's a baby elephant in there. Yeah, and I remember the sound mixer for the American cut of Godzilla 2000 was saying how he put like his baby daughter's like coos and ahs and stuff into the aliens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they, they do a lot of that. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, and like I said, just so much tension throughout. There's a mystery. There's a lot of mystery in that first act as well because we don't know what's going on. Now, obviously, the poster is telling you, and the trailer for this movie made no secret. You're getting giant ants. No question. But they still let there be a mystery because nobody knows what's going on. It's almost like a police procedural at the beginning. We talked about how this is such a serious film. It feels like a police procedural at the beginning. Yeah, don't you feel like Tarantula like straight up copied it whenever it came out? I don't remember how many years apart they were, but I mean, desert only a body. Few, and, yeah. Actually, <laughs> only a few. That yeah. was the that was something when I was putting together the list of movies to cover for this season. I realized, good lord, it could be very easy to just get stuck in the fifties. There's so uh -huh. many of these. You know, Tarantula and the Black Scorpion and things like that. So it's like, okay, just pick a handful of the best ones, or at least the most entertaining ones from the 50s. <laughs> and then move on. Yeah. But Tarantula, I wouldn't be surprised if it was following in the footsteps of this film. Not at all. Because, like I said, I think I mentioned this, this was the first quote-unquote big bug movie. This was an example of kind of two subgenres. It was the first big bug movie, and it's also a prime example of the atomic mutation monster that was very popular in the 1950s. You could thank Beast from 20,000 Fathoms for starting that. Yeah. In fact, I found out that between 1948 and 1962, Hollywood made 500-plus science fiction films. Wow. And this was just one of them. But it was also one of Warner Brothers' highest-grossing movies in 1954, so no surprise that there would be imitators. Yeah, and it's, you brought up the Black Scorpion. That was one I hadn't seen in ever, but I finally watched it like last summer, and it, it was pretty good, too. I, I enjoyed it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's an interesting one. That has a bit of a storied history. 
But getting back to them, in fact, the film critic Bill Warren said that when he went to go see this movie back in the day, there were kids who cried when Ben the cop died. I, I was worried you were going to say they cried when the ants died, and I was going to say those are sick no, kids. No, no, no. This is not a. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is not a. Uh, uh, what what? The beasts, yeah. They, the oh, kid yeah. This is not a beast from twenty thousand. Yeah, this is not a yeah. beast from twenty thousand fathoms thing where it, it was so sad that then somebody uh, that the same guy went and made Gorgo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> where the monster didn't die. But uh, that police investigation scene does confirm something for us. The dietitians were right. Sugar is bad for you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know how giant ants eat sugar cubes, but okay. <laughs> 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 I would think those would be a little too small <laughs> for giant ants. Yeah, I had I had that same thought. Yeah. But whatever. It, you know, Like I said, it's it's good foreshadowing, and and it helps to build tension. The aftermath that we see of that, we don't necessarily see gruesome deaths in this film, but the way they talk about it is so unnerving, dude. And we see the yeah. bodies afterward. I feel like that actually had a bit more impact than actually seeing the things. you know, And them talking yeah, about agree. how, oh, they have stingers and they inject acid into them. And it's just like, oh, <laughs> oh. Oh, I don't want to think about it. <laughs> but uh, I know that uh, I know apparently the kids were sad about Ben the cop, but uh I mean he did turn the lights off. Probably not the best move, dude. If I forgot about that part, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Although <laughs> I did write down here they when they were talking about whatever it was that they were doing because they're talking about how the trailers that were, they were finding that were wrecked were getting destroyed from the inside and not the outside and someone made a comment about how you know, he uh, one of the cops that they found who was dead oh well, that cop ben the cop had unloaded his gun and he said oh, whatever he was shooting at it was quote-unquote armored like a battleship and i just wrote my notes <laughs> was it as big as one a yeah. little preview of things to come <laughs> and then did you notice several of our cast members don't show up until a little ways into the movie too? Yeah. Who does yeah. that? <laughs> Apparently this movie, uh, our main character actually doesn't really show up until about 17 minutes in. Yeah. You know, I mean, the only thing that kind of threw me for a loop on this movie as a writer is how they make two different trips to two different asylums or whatever. And, mm -hmm. you know, because it's like first they meet the Texas pilot who's in the asylum. Then they meet the old man who's in the, the asylum. And usually as a writer, you try to find a way to differentiate things. I thought that was a little wonky, but that was my only critique of the movie in that regard. Mm -hmm. I just thought it was interesting because we had several characters who were Important characters don't show up later, including yeah. Pat, Dr. Pat, <laughs> <laughs> who it kind of fits into a lot of the usual kind of 1950s science fiction tropes, but she's also very atypical. Now, yeah, yeah. But now, I was thinking about that too, yeah. Yeah, well, like uh, on one hand, she's the, I call them the the beautiful assistant because you always, to the scientist character. So we have our cranky old scientist character, who, by the way, when I was watching this, I was thinking to myself, he looks familiar. Why does he look familiar? Oh, that's why. Edmund Gwen played Chris Kringle in, in Miracle on 34th Street. 
Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he's Santa Claus. There you go. <laughs> Dr. Santa Claus. <laughs> But he brings his daughter along. And like I said, token beautiful assistant like you would normally see in these movies. But she, in a lot of essays and such that I was looking at, some other podcasts that I've heard talk about this, Kaiju Weekly, for one, they brought up how she is not a typical leading lady you would see in this, these sorts of movies. She's very professional. She's pretty cool-headed, even under pressure. She's also very assertive. She's not taking nothing from anybody, including the boys. Yeah, Pat paved the way for, like, female action heroes. And, I mean, isn't she, like, one of the first in that mold where she's, like, the girl scientist that they don't want to take along and she's really good at her job? And- mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, she's really good at her job. I think she screams once in this movie. She's not a, being a damsel. She's just startled yeah. by the fact that, oh, my gosh, it's a giant ant. Yeah. yeah who I, wouldn't react? Yeah, who wouldn't yeah. react like that? I'm just saying. But then I, again, someone also pointed out that we have one of the men at the end of the movie. He screams. You never see that in these old 50s movies. But he got caught in the mandibles of the ant, and he, well, he did the Wilhelm scream. Yeah. I, yes, Jimmy, I know. The Wilhelm scream. The famous Wilhelm scream, which apparently was only two years old at this point. <laughs> but it was made famous in one of your favorite things ever, Jimmy, Star Wars. <laughs> Does Jimmy wish that they'd played the Wilhelm scream when he died? <laughs> no. Oh, really? <laughs> you do kind of wish that that had happened in the Warren space. Well, I guess missed opportunity there. <laughs> But yeah, actually, it, oh, no, I, I stand corrected. It, you should have said something, Jimmy. It was actually three years old at this point. It was in a film called Distant Drums. And it gets used several times in this movie. <laughs> it's it's very yeah, distinct. It's, it's the most I've ever heard it in a film that I'm conscious of. Yeah, it, it appears at least once in every Star Wars movie, I feel like. Yeah. <laughs> or at least most of them. <laughs> but that's where it was made popular. But yeah, anyway, so yeah, very good at her job. She and she tells she talks back, man. She talks back. She actually says, like, guess what? I'm an expert. You need to listen to me. Oh, I'm going down into the nest with you. Oh, also, Amer- you, you with the American flamethrowers. Uh, uh, giant ants don't like American flamethrowers. <laughs> as giant monster messages that's another podcast that's a running joke on their show they they talk about how american flamethrowers solve everything (laughs) i've seen in this movie (laughs) yeah of course you can vouch for that jimmy i'm sure you've used a flamethrower or two in your time you've got stories oh yeah i'd love to hear about them really you tried to fight a camacris with it once I'm sure that went well. Yeah, that only works on American monsters. Uh, apparently, yeah. <laughs> They're not quite as wild and crazy as their Japanese counterparts. Yeah. But what about the other characters here? What did you think of them? I I, I thought I was actually pretty impressed, I have to say. Yeah, I, I just think the old, like you said, the Santa Claus scientist was probably my favorite of the bunch. Just, I felt like he commanded the audience's attention when he was on screen more than anybody else. Did you get a little bit of kind of a generational gap thing going on there? Where he's old, a little bit cantankerous, gets a little bit annoyed with how people don't quite take him seriously. 
Yeah, definitely. So, so there's a little bit of tension. I like that there's actually some interpersonal conflict for the characters. And it's not just a straight plot-driven movie where it's just like, we need to solve whatever is going on here, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah but Because then they're like, well, wait, you know what's going on? Yes, I do, but I'm not telling you yet. I have to make sure. I'm like, but you need to tell us. <laughs> so the young folk are getting a little, rimb- a little antsy there. Uh, sure, Jimmy. That I, I, oh. didn't, I didn't quite mean it that way, but go for it. Yeah, at least you gave me that, not the sad trombone. <laughs> but but he won't say anything until he's sure. Yeah, which I actually really appreciated. Although I did like that really that line when they're talk when they meet Pat for the first time, and someone says she's a swell doctor, right? And then. <laughs> Our, our leading oh, man gosh. says, if she's the kind who treats the sick, I'll get a fever real quick. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, I, I miss witty scripts like that. Like, this is made <laughs> back at a time when everybody wanted to make witty scripts. Didn't matter yeah. what the movie was. You needed to have witty scripts. But it's funny. We were talking about this coming out the same year as Godzilla in Japan and people talk about how influential Beast from 20,000 Fathoms was on Godzilla but there's still some parallels between all three of those films in this one too because we have atomic mutations we have nuclear tests we have deaths by the monsters early on you know that eventually leads to them figuring out what's going on we have an elderly scientist in all of them well I guess Sarazawa is not really elderly but you know what I mean well, no, because we have well, Dr. Yeah, Yamane. Yamane. Yeah, we have Yamane. Yamane. I feel silly. So, and yeah. then he has a daughter, uh-huh. and then she screams. She she gets the signature scream shot, just like in them. Oh, yes, yes. Oh, oh uh, then we have the young guy who's kind of a love interest. Although in this one, that, that doesn't yeah. really go a whole, it doesn't go all that far, other than a little bit of flirtation. But, oh, man. Hmm. Oh, another one of my favorite scenes in this is that little girl. That little girl, I don't know where they found her. I mean, I spent the whole year last year talking about the Gamera movies. And there's all those jokes that we in the fandom love to make about the Kennys. Yes, including you, Jimmy. Talking about you. This little girl, I need to find out what her name is and see if she did anything after this. Because, uh, oh, yeah, here it is. Her name was Sandy Desher. Hmm. Let's see. Let's see what else she did. Oh, she was in the Adventures of Ozzy and Harriet. Hmm. My friend Flicka, Wagon Train, The Space Children. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she did. A, she did a little bit after this, but she's fantastic in this. She, she only says one line in the whole movie, and it's the title. <laughs> yeah, but that's yeah the most important line. Yes. Yeah, the title drop. She gets the title drop. But that scene, dude, where they they bring her out of her, I guess her, her, I don't know, not stupor, but they get her out of that kind of PTSD trance that she's in. And she just panics. And before that, we just see her wandering around and she just seems so dead. And it's just like, where did they find this little girl? It's so hard to find good child actors. But, yeah, she was very convincing. Yeah, but that scene where she quote unquote awakens—that is genuine. I think that is actually pretty tense and shocking. Some people might laugh at it now, but I thought it was very effective. No, I agree. I, I don't think there's anything laughable about it. 
I don't know. Sometimes the people that laugh at these movies, I almost think are like simple minded because they don't understand. They came from a different era and they just, but I mean, that aside though, to me, it's a very well handled scene. Mm -hmm, For sure. I kind (laughs) of wish they had told us what happened to her. I mean, she's, she's the first character we see in the movie. And then after about the first 20 minutes or so, we don't see her again. And she's just so traumatized. That poor little Mm -hmm. girl, man, she's never going to go on a picnic again. I just, (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah, that was a little insensitive wasn't it jimmy (laughs) you made me realize though there's kind of a through line in this movie with kids because it starts out with a little girl as the focus and then as it ends it's to the two little boys that we don't really oh that's right that is right because and then yeah the because they have to save them from the the second nest after a while that is interesting I'm a little shocked that a cop has a machine gun in the trunk of his car. I mean, it it came in handy, admittedly. Yeah. Because (laughs) unlike Japanese monsters, giant ants are not immune to bullets. (laughs) Yeah, that's one thing I noticed about American monsters. They're all, you can shoot all of them, you can flame throw all of them, but Japanese monsters, you never can. Well, and there are reasons for that. Uh, John, I, I actually read in Apocalypse Then by Mr. Bogue. He talked about they had a whole chapter dedicated to that. And it all goes back to cultural attitudes because this is very much a Cold War era movie. It's tapping into a lot of anxieties related to the atomic age. But for Americans, it was a bit more of a distant thing. It was a hypothetical, whereas the Japanese experienced it firsthand. So you have something like this, and this is a little atypical because in most American monster films, giant monster films from the 50s, like Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, the monster is a localized threat. It comes into New York and it's it's causing problems in New York. Whereas in like Godzilla and a lot of Japanese kaiju films, they end up becoming potentially worldwide threats. And that, again, goes back to the attitudes toward the bomb. And that's, you know, the idea in here that some were arguing was that even with something like them, you know, the, with the Americans handling it, it's the idea that, oh, you know, this can be contained and the Americans can handle it. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 And good point on Mike's part. Yeah. 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 And that's why they tend to be a little bit more detached. The monsters are more naturalistic while Japanese kaiju seem to kind of border on divine almost, or at least they have legends attached to them that make them seem like more than just simple atomic mutations. You know, Godzilla 1954. There's the story from Odo Island about this godlike being that they were sending, they made uh, virgin sacrifices to by sending them out in a boat and things like that. And we don't know exactly if that's entirely untrue or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other thing was that you know, American films... When they used radiation, the radiation was used to make things that were natural, unnatural. You know, so these were ants that were made huge by radiation. So that make them that made them unnatural. Yeah, up until a little bit later in Japanese kaiju films, they didn't necessarily do that. Now <laughs> they did that later with Godzilla, where he was a, a mutated dinosaur. But in the original films, he wasn't. <laughs> he was supposed to have been awakened. Yeah. Yeah, I prefer that origin story, the first one that he's just awakened by the bomb. I, I like that better. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But and I know we're kind of jumping around about this, but it's, it's since we're on the subject, I'm going to bring it up. Like I said, this is very much tapping into Cold War anxieties. Because most of us, you and I, don't really remember this because you know, but you know, because we're way too young to remember this. But the whole idea of just this looming threat of nuclear annihilation at every moment had to have been nerve wracking, and you see that reflected in particularly 1950s science fiction from America in the 1950s. There's a lot of science fiction films that tapped into different facets of those Cold War anxieties. You know, there were. Invasion of the Body Snatchers, just to use, as, use an example. That was tapping into things like the Red Scare and McCarthyism. This idea that anyone you knew could be a Soviet spy. This is a yeah. different facet of it. This is the anxiety related to nuclear power. The movie actually ends a little bit ominously <laughs> in that yeah. regard. There's this sense of wonder, but also a sense of uncertainty. Because we really don't know what's going to happen after this. You know, it's a bit foreboding. The old scientist man talking about how, because someone asked, Are there, do you think there could be more of these ants? And he said, I don't know. I'm paraphrasing here. He's like, I don't know. When man opened the, you know, the atomic door, who knows where, you know, what he was opening it up to, basically. Yeah, that, that was an awesome closing line. And that's another parallel that you're looking for with Godzilla. You know, how Yamane says maybe there's another Godzilla. So, mm-hmm. yeah, the, the, as long as there are nuclear weapons, I think he said basically, as long as there are nuclear weapons in the world, we may have another Godzilla arise. And Bogue talked about that as well about how. Uh, the ants are like nuclear weapons. He said they multiply quickly. The you know, nuclear weapons were being produced quickly at that point. They could wipe out humanity within a year. That is a line in the movie. Nukes could theoretically wipe the world out very quickly. And like I said, their victory was uncertain, just like nuclear engagement, especially at that time, just seems like something that was just never going to stop. Yeah, And this is, like I said, this is atypical because the ants in this are treated as a huge threat that threatens the entire world, not just that area, not just Los Angeles when we get to the, you know, the last act of the movie, when it goes to Los Angeles. This is a huge problem. But again, it goes back to that American mentality of, you know, this can be contained. The, the Americans can handle yeah. it, you know. You know, we're the big dang heroes, you know, and, you know, <laughs> the, the, and the people in the heroes in this movie are technically people in authority, right? You know, police officers, uh-huh, the military, yeah, yeah. scientists. Yeah, that's also one of the big differences between American and Kaiju films. Yeah, they'll revere scientists for sure, but eh, the military, yeah, they're a little more ambivalent. <laughs> yeah. But, the military never really solves the problem in a kaiju film, Japanese kaiju uh-uh. film. Not unless they get help from scientists. Yeah, here's the line I was talking about. When man entered the atomic age, he opened a door into a new world. What we eventually find in that new world, nobody can predict. Yeah, I wish back then they were a little more sa- savvy on shared universes and they could have just... Well, I mean, I guess Tarantula was universal and them was Warner Brothers, but I mean, like, you know, my trainer thought it'd just be kind of cool if they did sequels to them, but it was just different bugs or different animals, you know? Because, I mean, they basically did it anyways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in standalone movies. 
Actually, it's funny that you, to get back to the film itself here, it's funny that we were talking about parallels to Godzilla 1954. I also found a few parallels, of all things, to Godzilla Raids again. Mm. I'm intrigued. Yeah. First, the movie opens with a guy doing a survey in an airplane. Yeah. And then we have the long educational segment on the monsters, led by the scientists. Oh, I caught that. I did catch that because when that came on, I was like, oh, this reminds me of my, my favorite scene from Godzilla Raids again. In the American or <laughs> Japanese? In the version. American. I actually <laughs> love that part in the American. I love it. I love like the random dinosaur footage. I love it. <laughs> Ed Godachewski in his commentary for that movie called that a documentary on unintelligent design. <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was pretty funny. But it's just interesting. It's like the movie just stops and becomes an educational film for yeah. a couple of minutes with with Dr. Santa Claus telling us about ants with war, with lines like, I like how much of this is actually accurate? I almost wish I had done research on ants. You know what, Jimmy? Look this up. Look this up, okay, for your blog because I must know. But he talked about ants engaging in fight for 72 hours and then oh yeah said that ants were the only other creatures on earth who make war <laughs> i just assumed that was true is it not i i, I don't know what god i'm like Pretty sure there are other animals that will do crazy things like that, but okay. We got to but we got to build up the threat level of the ants, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, we, we were talking about those flying saucers. Yeah, that was in Brownsville, Texas. I'll have to ask our one of our new bosses here on the island, Mr. Gold. He's from Texas. Mm. He knows about the ant UFOs over in Brownsville. Yes, I'm mocking you, Mr. Gold. I'm doing a terrible job, I know. But you have thorough, been thoroughly mocked. Deal with it. <laughs> Oh, I should have brought this up, too. You know another extra mile that this film went that I think helps to elevate it above B-movie status is when we get to that second act when they're trying to figure out where the ants are going after they try to destroy that first nest with the, the wives and the mothers talking about their husbands and sons who had been caught by the ants. It really brings a human yeah. touch to everything that's going on. These weren't just faceless victims. These were people who had lives yeah. and families. I mean, they even stopped for for about a minute and let one of these mourning women t just tell a story about her husband and, and her sons. They didn't have to do that, but it, it really added a layer to this. <laughs> and then there was the scene when they're talking to all of those people who were witnesses and find, trying to find out what they were doing. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and we get the impression that these people aren't necessarily reliable because they're either loony bin inmates, drunks, or my personal favorite, <laughs> the woman who was who uh, spent the night with a quote-unquote sick friend who happened to be a married man. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm like, oh, man. <laughs> that must have been uh, pushing it a little bit for 1954. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Oh, oh boy. <laughs> wow. And there is talk about the Cold War, quote unquote, going hot, which I actually found out that even though 
I thought about doing research on McCarthyism because there's some crazy essayists out there who tried to argue that the ants are basically Soviets because hmm. it was yeah, in the sense it was trying to tap into McCarthyism. Like, ah, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. But the Joseph McCarthy hearings were yeah, being I, held in 1954. Uh, do that is that for some reason they feel guilty about enjoying the movie and they need to find like some wild reason for it to matter. Whereas I just enjoy the movie, you know? Well, speaking as an academic myself, yeah, some people get a little carried away. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, you know what? Sometimes an ant is just an ant and a sword is just a sword. Okay, guys? Yeah. I mean, (laughs) a giant ant is just a giant ant. Although there were some that tried to argue that yeah, they were basically Soviets because they were operating with you know, a hive mind and there was a bunch of them and like there were so many parallels that they were trying to draw. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's like the Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull. The, yeah. the villain talks about the hive mind. And uh-huh. so that's interesting. Yeah, I'm actually, I see it right here because it said that they were supposed to symbolize the quote unquote communist foe because they were quote, ruthless, cold-blooded as an insect or reptile, utterly strange. Even went so far yeah, as to say yeah. they're more machine than creature. Hmm. <laughs> and then the the SAS made this joke about how they you know one of the ants actually flips over, and if you watch really closely, you can see the mechanical bits underneath. No, oh, I didn't notice that. Huh. <laughs> yeah, quote: They are strong, smart, aggressive, collectivist, and impeccably organized. They communicate via an eerie keening that sounds almost like sonar. Their gleaming carapaces evoke the technology of war. Or they're just giant ants. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, they are Soviet ants. You must understand. They are yeah. Soviet ants <laughs> sent by Mother Russia to invade. Uh, they are not born in, uh, in uh, New Mexico desert. No, they come from Chernobyl. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, but before Chernobyl blow up, that, that's why it blow up. We are they making ants in in laboratory? You know, that's why they explode. We don't want anyone to know. Radioactive ants. <laughs> You're incredibly good at keeping that accent. I mean, most people can do it for a few sentences, but that was the whole way through. That's that's good. Well, in Mother Russia, giant ants ruin picnics. Then we step on them and go back to eating. <laughs> yeah. We know next is going to come the rumors that Nate's actually a Russian, so I'd I'd watch it. Well, and Russia's in the news right now, so... Yeah, but we're not a political podcast. We're not here to talk about that. But, uh, yeah, I got to... Russia in the news. Putin. Vladimir Putin, who is a James Bond villain in uh, in real life. I mean... Anyway... (laughs) Yeah, some of that might need to get edited, Jimmy, or maybe I just won't care. <laughs> Everyone here on the island is hearing it, so. Hmm. Moving on. Uh, oh, another great atmospheric bit. Uh, when we get to the end, the ants on the sh- uh, uh, their shadows on the wall. That was really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really good. And this is another. Uh, but yeah. this is a this is a major difference, even from Beast of Twenty Thousand Fathoms. And that is our scientist is prioritizing world safety over science. 
There's never <laughs> any talk from him about, no, we can't kill them. They are a scientific discovery. They must be studied. No, he's like, no, if we don't wipe them out, they're going to wipe us out. <laughs> yeah, I, I like that about his character. is like, heck yeah. Yeah. And the, it's really claustrophobic at the end, too, when they're going around in the sewers, you know, trying to find the kids and then make sure they locate the nest so they can properly blow it up. Yeah. <laughs> they got there too late before. Now, I know before we went on the air today, you were telling me that you really liked the first two acts of this film, but you were not as big a fan of the third act once it moves to Los Angeles. Would you care to tell us why that is? Yeah, just the simple reason, I think, is as a kid, you know, I love those old monster movies. I, I didn't watch the newer monster movies when I was growing up. I just saw the older ones. And so for me to finally see a monster movie set like in my state and like even though the landscape wasn't exact, but I mean like it, you know, it, it really captures the atmosphere, like you said, of the wind, of the trailer in the desert. Just so to me, that's what I loved is that finally there was like a monster movie set in a location that I could relate to, which is also kind of why I like Tarantula to a lesser degree. But I, that's really the shallow reason that I like the first two acts better. But I mean, from a, a writer's perspective, though, it, it's a solid script, you know, and I think they made the right choice to set the end of it at a different location. And I, I do think the tunnels beneath Los Angeles is a, a, a really good setting. And so, yeah, well, that was the only reason. Just I enjoyed the visuals and the setting. Mm -hmm. Even though you did say that it's not filmed in New Mexico because it doesn't look no. really look uh -uh. like New Mexico. <laughs> No, yeah, definitely a, a California desert. But like I said, that's okay. You know, I'm a, um, I'm a more of a practical person. You know, movies need to make money. So, mm -hmm. you know, I get it. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, they passed California off as South Korea. So yeah. <laughs> passing yeah. it off as two states away. I mean, yeah, not nearly as much of a stretch. But no, I did have a few quick little bits of information i wanted to share with everybody before we move on to the toku topic but you know we you mentioned already about you know the 3d and that it was in color and i think some of the home media releases don't have the color title but it's very striking when they do have it yeah. and you know there are some bits you can tell where it was meant to be in 3d like when they're shooting the flamethrower toward the camera and you know that's probably that was meant to be for the 3d that and it was eastman color that was uh, working on that yeah, I, I want to say when I saw it on VHS, which is the only way I ever saw it, it was just black and white. So when I saw the mm -hmm. colored titles, now it, it struck me as different for sure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But here's something for you. And this is actually something that a lot of people don't quite realize, especially when you're talking about genre pictures or even genre television that was still being filmed in black and white. Those actually were not just the normal colors, like what they were supposed to be. No, they actually made them completely different colors to make them look better in the black and white photography. Like I've heard stories about how if you were actually on the set of the Munsters back in the 60s, it was the gaudiest looking set you will you would have ever seen mm. because they had to color it to make color it you know, ridiculous colors to make it look good in the black and white. Huh. Same thing was true of the giant ant props. Huh. They were actually purplish green. Wow. So just think about that. If you ever, I don't know if those props are still around. Look that up too, Jimmy, while you're at it for your blog. But they would, I bet they would, they're probably some of the ugliest things you've ever seen. <laughs> purplish green. 
Now, oh, and I mentioned how the you know there's a bit where it gets uh, flipped over, and you can see the uh, mechanical bits. Apparently, that gets obscured in some of the DVD releases, so I guess they try to edit around it. One of the best shots in Jaws 2 is ruined because the shark's got his mouth wide open. It's an amazing shot because he almost eats one of the teenagers on the raft. But like you can see the mechanics inside the shark, mm-hmm. you know, and they, they didn't remove that from uh, their Blu-ray. So I'm interested that they might have done that for them, but not for Jaws, which is a more recent film. Yeah, that's interesting. And uh, I also found the name of the supervisor who was in charge of the puppets, a guy named Ralph Ayers. We might look at these effects and think they're quaint, but this actually got nominated for the Best Special Effects Oscar. Yeah, I, th- I think it had solid effects for 1954. Yep. It lost to 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Make of that what you will. Yeah, maybe it's just because it was in color. Maybe that's what gave it the edge, but maybe, who knows? Maybe, But it did have a giant squid, and it was a Disney movie. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they shot that giant squid at sunset initially, and it just looked really awkward, and that's why they redid the whole scene in the rain. So if, mm. if you have the DVD, you can watch the sunset version. So Ooh. since, you know, I didn't add I didn't add anything unmade on them, I figured I'll, <laughs> that's the unmade thing I can mention on 20,000 Leagues. <laughs> yeah. Uh, fun fact, Leonard Nimoy, Spock himself, has an uncredited bit part in this. He is an army staff sergeant who reads a news story on a teletype machine, and I suddenly want to go back and watch that again to find him. Yeah, I, I didn't oh, of course you saw him, Jimmy. Of course you did. God, you're trying to one-up me over here. Mm-hmm. Mm. I only put this down in my notes because it's relevant to me as a gamer, but uh, have you ever played Fallout 3? No. Uh-uh. Okay, well, Fallout 3 is a post-apocalyptic video game series. There's a side quest that you can do that has giant mutated fire ants. Hmm. I remember trying that side quest out once. The ants killed me very quickly. I was upset. So this, so in this case, it's the fire ants, and they actually breathe fire. So they, they were the American flamethrowers. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, oh, like, oh, we have uh, mutated further. Now we are the flamethrowers. <laughs> you could say they upped the ante. Wow, John. Wow, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. I don't care. What the, it doesn't matter that Jimmy yeah. played the sad trombone for you. I am, <laughs> I am proud of you. But the title, this is great. The title of that side quest is called Those! Oh, that's funny. <laughs> Those! And it's like you have to point and you have to shout it. Because like I said, it's all caps yeah. with an exclamation point. That is part yeah. of the title. And there were people who, uh-huh. sp- who spelled it wrong. They didn't put it all caps. <laughs> I was like, you're doing it wrong, man. You're doing it wrong. <laughs> uh, oh, there's talk about cloud seeding in this, which is kind of interesting. Talked about cloud seeding mm-hmm. in my previous podcast life, but it's just a throwaway line here. It's like, really? You guys could just cloud seed and make rain? Okay. <laughs> sure, guys. Yeah, it's good to hear. Yeah, I've got a few more notes here that are talking more about you know, like the social conventions and how it... Like, here's one thing, one line from one of the essays I read that said, in their vast visions of atomic apocalypse, B-movies crystallize American paranoia without questioning it. And it started talking about dehumanization and otherness and things like that. He said this was an inadequate response. And again, I just look and it's like, I think you're kind of missing the point. <laughs> yeah. You're really missing the point, guys. 
Yeah, but uh, there was also this interesting quotation I found from a French film director named Francois Truffaut, who said, quote, when a film achieves a certain success, it becomes a sociological event, and the question of its quality becomes <laughs> secondary. That's actually one of the more profound things that I've read in a long time <laughs> when it yeah. comes to film criticism, because that's definitely true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if you get something that is big enough, people will completely overlook its flaws, and I think we've seen that happen a lot. And then you have, you know, like people. Then you have people like me, or even you, John, who you know, were like, "You guys not notice the issues that this has?" <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really, guys, you ignore that. Actually, I know a few other people who were kind of like that too. And then I'll end on this, even though that'd be a great thing to end on for this segment. But I did want to bring this up here. It's interesting. It goes back to something we were talking about earlier. One of those things that's a little bit different about Amer- about particularly American, I think, films from this era. A guy named Peter Biskind, who wrote about the genre in a book called Seeing is Believing, How Hollywood Taught Us to Stop Worrying and Love the 50s. Hmm. He said, where science caused the problem, science often solved it too. It's kind of interesting. So yeah. Science made these ants, and now science is fixing the, uh, fixing the problem. A little bit of a different approach compared to Japanese filmmakers. But speaking of science, <laughs> let's get into the toku topic. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Jason Giaconetti. You may recognize my voice from the Vault of Starling Monster Horror Tales of Terror. And if you don't, you should be listening. But today I need to ask you a few questions. Do you like big bugs and you cannot lie? Other robots just can't deny that when the Queen of Space walks in and puts a blast in your face that your gears get sprung? Are you deep in the bee we're sharing? Are you hooked and you can't stop staring? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then have I got a podcast for you. Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. From classics to cults and all the yummy, yummy cheese in between. Look for my new show, Bots, Bugs, and Babes, on the Two True Freaks Network and on iTunes. That's Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. Double J on the Triple B is your hookup. Holler if you hear me. All right. Now, John, while I wasn't quite buying the idea that this film was tapping into McCarthyism or anything like that, because I did consider researching McCarthyism, you know, and even something like a title like them, you know, it's it's talking about the other, right? You know, it's them, you know, but something like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, I feel like is much better suited for something like that. Not this film. Yeah, I agree 100%. Yeah, but like I said, this is definitely tapping into atomic anxieties because of the bomb. You know, this is one of the high points of the Cold War early on. And what this film does directly reference that is very interesting and pertinent is nuclear tests. It makes no secret of the fact that these ants were mutated by nuclear testing. Although something that's interesting for... (laughs) This is actually a little bit smarter compared to a lot of other films where it's just like it's a one-time dose of radiation and suddenly they're gigantic. 
they actually said in this one, the ants got big over time because there was exposure over the course of years Mm -hmm. that made them huge. But just to put this into perspective, this uh, you start attaching numbers to this. But there has been a total of 2,212 nuclear tests conducted by eight nations since 1945. And here's Yeah, that's an insane amount. Well, you want to know what's also insane? 1,032 of them were done by the U.S. alone. Wow. And these were all conducted at the Nevada test site, which we'll be talking about a little bit more. The Pacific Ocean, so you might be familiar with the Bikini Atoll and Castle Bravo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that infamous one. And the Amchitka, I hope I said that right, island of the Alaskan Peninsula. And also in Colorado, Mississippi. And, oh, look, your home state, New Mexico. <laughs> yeah, there, there was a couple there. One of the more interesting ones that people forget about was they actually did an underground nuclear test in 1961 mm-hmm. which kind of ties in with the opening of Godzilla versus Megalon so mm-hmm. that's that's another interesting mm-hmm. one yeah I did find some stuff about that so uh, we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit but just to put it into perspective I found the list of all of the major nuclear tests or nuclear operations that had been conducted between World War II and this film So I only went up to 1954 because those would have been the ones that would have been on people's minds most likely. So you had Crossroads, which was in 1946, Sandstone in 1948, Ranger, 1951, Greenhouse in 1951, Buster Jangle in 1951. Some of these names, dude. Yeah. I'm telling you, some of these names sound like they could... I've joked before that nuclear test code names sound like they could be band names. Yeah, Buster yeah, Jangle. Totally. That sounds like that sounds like a, the name of a, a like an oldie singer. You know, Buster yeah. Jangle the, with the new hit song by Buster Jangle, <laughs> and then Tumblr Snapper, and then Ivy. And I've got a few notes that are specifically about Operation Ivy from and Tumblr Snapper and Ivy were in 1952. Oh, that's why Ivy was the first H bomb test. So a hydrogen bomb, which is not the same as an atomic bomb. And I just had to bring this up just to make fun of my friend Michael. (laughs) The code name for that bomb was Mike. Hmm. And it had an explosive yield of 10.4 megatons, which was 400 times more powerful than the bomb used on Hiroshima. And then there was Upshot Knothole. That is a real name. (laughs) And that was in 1953, so that probably would have been the one that was most on people's minds for Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, which had nuclear testing in it. And then, obviously, Castle Bravo, 1954, which has connections to Godzilla. You want to know more about that? Listen to my Godzilla 1954 episode. And also listen to the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms episode. We talk a little bit about some of that stuff, too. So I brought it, bring all of that up, but I did not bring up the, I, I try to remember, did they mention it specifically by name in this or were they just hinting at it without the name in this? The test that made, that started the ants to, you know, becoming, you know, big in Nevada. <laughs> I don't remember. I mean, I mean, all I know is that they got the place name right, at least because they did yeah. say White Sands and Al- Alamogordo, but I don't remember if they, they mentioned like the, the name of the, the operation and yeah. all that. Yeah. Well, uh, it, it was Trinity. 
That was the first ever nuclear test, and it was conducted July 16th, 1945. Now, the location that you're giving us is a little bit different than what I have here in my notes, unless I'm just misunderstanding this. But according to this, it was at Hornada del Muerto. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up, yeah. 35 miles southeast of Socorro, New Mexico. Yeah, so uh, Alamogordo, Socorro, you know, they're kind of in the same quadrant of the state. But yeah, the Jornada del Muerto means journey of death. So, I mm-hmm. mean, it's amazing that they chose that spot. That of is. Because a lot of people, yeah, a lot of people died on that stretch of land because it's just so treacher, treacherous and brutal. So, yeah, that they tested it in that area is yeah. just really cool. That um, is some unintentional irony there, I'm guessing, but good Lord. But yeah, but I mean, if you're looking for a home city for like when you go to Trinity site, like you would most likely stay in Alamogordo or pass through Alamogordo. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it was part of the Manhattan Project. It was codenamed Trinity by J. Robert Oppenheimer, who was the director of the Los Alamos Laboratory where the bombs were being developed. And it was inspired by lines from the John Don poems. Which doesn't surprise me because the line that Oppenheimer is most famous for, now I am become death destroyer of worlds, was mm. taken from the Bhagavad Gita, which is a Hindu religious text. So sounds to me like he was a very well-read, very spiritual man, which is actually kind of appropriate because because Dr. Santa Claus tries to get a bit biblical in this. That took me back a little bit. So I'm like, scientist is trying to quote the Bible? That's interesting. I think, it's yeah. a phantom I, Bible verse. Yeah. It doesn't exist, but. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I noticed that. Yeah. It, it's either that or they took a verse and just really twisted it. Yeah. But you'd be surprised how often that happens in the movies. Trust me. Oh, yeah. I talk with Reverend Mafune. I've talked with him about that a few times. And he's like, yeah, what's with these phantom Bible verses? <laughs> it's, it's crazy. And the Trinity bomb was the same model as the Fat Man, which was the one that was dropped on Nagasaki. Hmm. The thing that is interesting is that no one quite understood the full extent of the dangers of radiation at the time. This was still very new. Because they conducted the test in secret, there were no evaluations ordered. And then fallout from the blast was detected as far away as my home state of Indiana, which is a little bit terrifying, to be honest. Yeah. And residents in the immediate area were exposed to over 20,000 millirams of radiation, which is 10,000 times the safety limit set by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. And what's crazy is uh, I'm told that my grandparents dr- drove through the blast radius just a few days after that. Oh, no. That's oh, what no. the family oral history says. I mean, there might be a fact checker out there that looks and says, well, it was blocked off for two weeks. I, you know, I don't know. But that's well, there, just family oral history, you know. Yeah, that's uh, my fact checker right there, Jimmy. So <laughs> maybe yeah. he'll look into it for his follow-up blog for the episode. No. Yeah, but they Jimmy were... is biased to prove me wrong, so I don't know. He's talking to you, man. Well, I heard him. I'm not going to dignify that with a response. Oh, okay. Oh, jeez, man. Hey, hey, calm down, Jimmy. We got a show to do. All right, all right. Mm, yeah, I don't need you guys starting your yeah. flame wars again. It might get nuclear. But, but, you yeah. never know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, jeez. Oh. <laughs> yeah, no, I actually. I, uh, I went to a lecture, and the lecture was on ghost towns of New Mexico. And even the atomic bomb was talked about in that. And I, oh, gosh, I wish now I could remember exactly what was said. But 
my friend was talking about how it was several years after the test was conducted, they noticed that the cows, I'm not joking, the cows had lost their black spots and were pure white. Oh, geez. And they kind of thought that was, <laughs> that might even be today, actually. I, uh, that's I, wild. I, I wish actually, I, actually yeah. uh, from some of the stuff I was looking at, uh, part of the reason why the, I think it was a iodine 131, I think is what it was. I'm, I'll double check my notes here in a little bit to make sure. But it was because of contaminated milk. Well, yeah. This is why it got yeah. spread out. But yeah. Yeah, or they were breathing in the contaminated air. They were ingesting contaminated rainwater or yeah. goat's milk. So it was just, it, it got everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's even the theory. That's why the aliens allegedly crashed near Roswell is they observed the blast, you know, because, I mean, that's a big deal. And I that's kind of the mm-hmm. the what the plot of the Daily Earth stood still hinges on. But they really think, you know, the aliens saw the blast and mm-hmm. that's why they crashed in the New Mexico desert. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. You never know. It might have actually happened. (laughs) The world we live in, I'm willing to believe it. But yeah, but you know, then the wind was spreading it out. So I saw some maps that were kind of gathering how far it may have gone out, and it went all over the place thanks to the wind. Yeah. But between 1951 and 1958, over a hundred nuclear weapon tests were conducted uh, in the atmosphere at the Nevada test site or the NTS. There's going to be a lot of talk about that. There are way more nuclear tests conducted in your neighboring state of Nevada than in New Mexico. But New Mexico had the first one. And the Nevada test site is about 75 miles northwest of Las Vegas. Yeah, well, actually, again, can tie this into Lost Films. Willis O'Brien wrote a script called Umba, which was about a like a Native American giant legend. Mm-hmm. And one of his versions ended with Umba the giant walking out of Las Vegas and Umba accidentally walks into the atomic test zone and gets vaporized and that's how the movie ends. Oh, or, or would have ended if it got made. You know? <laughs> that's a little anticlimactic. But it's yeah. the Nevada test site's pretty big. It's seven it's thirty five hundred square kilometers of undisturbed land. Undisturbed, they say. I'm pretty sure a nuclear explosion is one heck of a disturbance, but it says that's actually larger than some small countries. Yeah. And all of these were supervised by the Atomic Energy Commission, or the AEC, and they monitor peacetime atomic energy and technological development. So the first test at the NTS was on January 27th, 1951, and that was with the detonation of a bomb codenamed Shot Abel. Again, these bomb code names, <laughs> they're all—they always make me snicker a little bit. And that was part of Operation Ranger, which we—I I mentioned that name before. It's a one kiloton bomb. And then between 1951 and 1992, the, the U.S. government conducted 1,021 nuclear tests at the NTS. A hundred of them were atmospheric, oh. and 921 were underground. There's a reason for that because they started banning some of these things. Like, yeah, you know, I found some. I'll probably mention it again a little bit later. But like, atmospheric nuclear tests got banned in the '60s. You might be wondering why are they conducting all of these tests? Well, they needed to determine the impact of nuclear weapons on on the environment and on man-made structures. So you might be you might know the the famous stock footage where they would literally build mock towns and then blow them up to see what nuclear bombs would do to them. Yeah. Yep, that's where a lot of that was happening. And also do it to military equipment. They uh, they also wanted to find possible peacetime uses for these weapons. What are you going to do in peacetime with nuclear bombs? Nuclear energy, I can understand, <laughs> but yeah. 
What are you going to... Okay, whatever. <laughs> Peacetime use of nuclear bombs. Please explain this to me. But I guess they had to figure something out. And they were also working on the strength and the effectiveness of the weapons. They were proof-testing ex existing weapons. They were studying the effects of nuclear fallout. Well, I can tell you what the effects of nuclear fallout are. Bad. <laughs> yeah. Very, very bad. There was talk about people who were you know, living nearby who were getting cancer and things like that. I found, I found some information about that as well. Yeah. And then sometimes they did some of these tests with military personnel, and they would be at ground zero for all of this. Yeah, that's insane. To develop battleground tactics related to it. And these were done in four regions in the NTS. They were called Frenchman Flat, Yucca Flat. Now, Yucca Flat I've heard of. And the, yeah, actually, isn't there... The, isn't there a movie called The Beast at Yucca Flat or something like that? Is that the one with the giant sheep or something? I'm not... It, no, no, God Monster of Yucca Flats. That's it. And it's about a mutated sheep, I think. I'm looking it up right now. I'm beating Jimmy to it. Yeah. The Monster of Yucca Flats. Yeah, here it is. No, The Beast of Yucca Flats. Oh, okay. A 1961B horror film. Oh, it has Tor Johnson. <laughs> Yeah, that's what I'm looking at. Is he the beast of Jekka Flats? Yep, he's the beast. That's it? The Gosh. plot concerns a Soviet scientist named Joseph Jaworski, oh, uh, who's Tor, who defects and flees to a Nevada test site called Yucca Flats, only to be turned into a mindless monster by atomic radiation stalking <laughs> the desert. Oh, so it's Amazing Colossal Man or the Incredible Hulk. <laughs> yeah, the Amazing Colossal Man on a budget. Yeah. The film was has very little dialogue and most of the speech is done by omniscient narration. Oh, good Lord. I bet this was... I feel like this was on MST3K. Uh, yeah, I think I'm seeing some images Yeah, of it was now. on MST3K. It's like, that's why I know that. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So there you go. So, Yucca Flat. Yeah, we made another connection here. And then we have Rainier Mesa and Pahude. I hope I said that right. Pahude Mesa. Hmm. So, you want to know something that is both shocking, but yet not all that surprising about this, John? Yeah. This was actually a boon in tourism. Oh, I hope my pseudo-sister is listening to this. Maybe here's a wacky idea for you to drum up tourism on Monster Island. It was a tourist boon for Las Vegas. Hmm. Because the mushroom clouds could be seen a hundred miles away oh my gosh can you imagine just going to vegas just like sipping on a martini or something and watching that you're not far off have you ever heard of dawn parties oh no but i can guess now people would hang out at the crack of dawn because the the tests would be conducted at dawn and they would just hang out sipping martinis and then wait for the the wait for the test to be conducted like they actually knew when it was going to happen they had calendars throughout oh. the city that advertised detonation times, and they would just all hang out with with their martinis and watch the bombs. Do you know when that like came to an end by chance? Uh, it says that it was in the the fifties and the early sixties. Okay, yeah, they would see the clouds, the bursts of light from hotel windows. <laughs> Can you imagine that? You go to Vegas, <laughs> you and you wake up at like five o'clock in the morning before sunrise in your hotel. And then watch them. I can't believe that. Wow. Oh my God. 
<laughs> this was this was a tourist attraction. That is so wacky to me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe I shouldn't have suggested that to my pseudo sister <laughs> on the air. Yeah, sure. Let's blow. St- uh, let's drop some bombs to get people to come. We have kaiju. All right. We don't need to <laughs> do nuclear tests. Okay. Nuclear tests this close to Japan are probably a bad idea anyway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, but. From uh, 1955, 1989, the average number of nuclear tests conducted every year was about 55, which is just crazy to think about. Mm. The peak was the late 50s and early 60s. The year 1962 alone, there were 178 tests, 96 of which were conducted by the United States. Yep, and I was right. Iodine-131. It's believed that because of the wind and everything and all the other ways that it got spread, that it may have killed as many as 500,000 Americans. Hmm which is just tragic to think about, which is why in 1984, the U.S. District Court Judge Bruce S. Jenkins ruled that radioactive fallout from above-ground tests in the 1950s made at least 10 people die of cancer and that the government was guilty of negligence by conducting those tests. And this was the first time that the explosions at the NTS were legally blamed for cancer. And the judge basically ruled that residents of Nevada, southern Utah, and northern Arizona should have been warned about the danger of radioactive contamination. And it, you know, that the basically that the government had screwed up with all of this and yeah. should have done more to minimize contamination. You know, and then when you there were you had President Kennedy in 1963 signed the nuclear test ban treaty that prohibited weapon tests underwater or in outer space or in the atmosphere. Hmm. Uh. Mm -hmm. And then the NTS was shut down in 1992. And that was the last time that the United States conducted a nuclear test, September 23rd, 1992. Mm. But then funny enough in 2010, the NTS, and maybe you can tell me about this. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to the NTS or not, but it's been renamed it's not the Nevada test site anymore. Now it's the Nevada national security site or the NNSS. Hmm. No, I've never been there, but it's not used for nuclear tests anymore, obviously, but it's used by the U S government for national security needs. It has been authorized for more nuclear tests. It's just, nobody's done it, but now it's the preferred location for the nuclear security administration defense programs industry research, developmental efforts. And the National Environmental Research Park is is there. And federal agencies and private industries conduct open-air experiments there, Hmm. uh, focusing on emergency response techniques and test remediation. So it's still being used for things. Yeah. But no, not uh, nuclear tests anymore. So, like I said... I think it's reading into it a little bit to say that these are, you know, Soviet ants, but the tests, those are all very real. Oh, and just as a fun little fact, August 29th, according to the UN, is International Day Against Nuclear Tests. Hmm. So there you go. Might have to make it a national holiday around here on the island. That's a ridiculous idea. (laughs) (laughs) But you had you said you had something to contribute to this conversation because you are a local in that area. Yeah, um, I heard that people in Roswell, even though it's two hours away, uh, the day of could could also see like a flash in the sky, 
and kind of hear something. And I guess at the time they just told them that they had a bad explosion at their ammunition storage facility. And that was their cover story for a little while until they like came clean. Mm -hmm. And and this is for the Trinity test. Yeah. For the Trinity test in Alamogordo. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's two hours. Yeah. It's about a hundred miles, right? Yeah. Yeah. It should be around a hundred miles. So that makes sense. That's what I had on that. So unless you've got anything else to contribute to that, John, or you, Jimmy, I guess, master interrupter over there, (laughs) with apologies to Retro Rewind for stealing that little moniker. uh, Yeah, no, that's all all I got on the uh, Atomic Test site. All righty. Well, let's start wrapping things up. All righty. And to kick off our closing segment here, I want to bring up a little bit of listener feedback. In fact, I'm really glad I made this selection, John, because our mutual friend, Neil Reby, a former co-host on the podcast, sent us some YouTube comments because... I guess he's one of those old fuddy-duddies that doesn't understand how podcatchers work, so he <laughs> listens to the show on YouTube, because I guess he understands YouTube. <laughs> Neil, that was me, because I said that I don't understand it well enough either, and that's also how I listen, is just on my YouTubes. <laughs> on my YouTubes, yeah. But yeah. Uh, he listened to a, he left a comment on a couple of episodes. He, yeah, we'll start with this one because it's from the earlier episode. He left one on episode 22, which was the Metters versus Die Machine. He said, the armor the Die Machine statue wore was from the Kofun period. I hope I said that right. You'll have to let me know, Kyoe Toshi, if I said that wrong. Which spanned from 300 to 530 AD. From the perspective of the characters, the Die Machine statue was about a thousand years old. Well, thank you very much for clarifying that. I think Kyoe Toshi also sent me some feedback uh, telling me that. It was good to know because a lot of people mislabel Daimajin as a samurai. Uh, technically, he predates the samurai. Neil knows that because he's researching a novel he's writing that's going to have like a yokai character in it from like a certain period. So mm. we'll have to be on the lookout for that. Ooh. Yeah, definitely. And then he also left a comment on one of our more recent episodes, 57, on Rodan, which had Kaiju Kim in it. And he says, It's interesting that you had pointed out that Rodan seems like two movies. When I first saw the movie on TV, I missed the first half. By then, the Mega Neuron were no longer a part of the story. The second time I saw the movie, I saw it from the beginning. The whole subplot around the Mega Neuron made me wonder if I was watching the right film. Yeah. <laughs> that is definitely true. <laughs> that movie does take a pretty big turn <laughs> there. <Yeah. laughs> Once you find out that the Mega Neuron are basically lunch... <laughs> breakfast for baby Rodan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I said, big turn. Was it like that for you, John, or did you have you had a, a, an experience like that too? No, because I always saw it from the beginning right away. So but it, it might have been a little bit that way, though, where I'd be like, well, where's the big, you know, giant dinosaur? Mm-hmm. No, but did you ever have that happen to you in an, uh, watching another movie? Oh, a different movie. Uh, probably. I, I can't bring one to mind yet. But actually, you know what? Yes. The people that Time Forgot, I was taping it off TV, but the schedules got off. So, like, 
I, I jumped in at the part where they're being held in like the Naga city of skulls. And I'm like, what is this? This isn't like land that time forgot. There's no dinosaurs. There's all these people in samurai costumes. And I was like so confused. Mm. So that's my only example. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I've told this story before, but I had a bit of a similar experience because my first ever Godzilla film was Terror of Mechagodzilla. But I caught the second half of it. And for a while there, I was a little bit obsessed with finding that one because it was my first one. Well, and then I found... Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla, thinking it was that movie, started watching it, and it. I think I don't remember how long it took me, but I think it took me at least 30, 45 minutes before I realized this is a different movie. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, well, now I'm excited that I found, uh, I found a new Godzilla movie I didn't know before, but I'm also disappointed I didn't find the one I saw on TV. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it took a little longer to find that one, unfortunately. But it was interesting seeing the first half, finally, to get the complete story. All right. And now it is time for one of my favorite segments of the show, the Patreon shout-outs. Go show Travis Alexander, Michael Hamilton, Danny Damana, Eli Harris, Chris Cook, Bex from Adim Dotaku, Damon Noise, The Cellcast, Eric Anderson, Ted Williams, and my personal favorite, Tofu Fury! <laughs> I'm telling you, John, every, that is the actual username of one of my patrons. <laughs> and it sounds like a Jackie Chan movie about cooking. <laughs> to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's just so much fun to say. <laughs> Tofu Fury! <laughs> I want that to be a real movie. I'm just saying. It's just, I'm just saying, Hong yeah, Kong filmmakers, too. I want that to be a real movie if it isn't already. Make it happen. <laughs> Demand it. <laughs> I'll make an excuse to cover it on the show. I don't care. Or you could just randomly throw a kaiju in it. I, I don't care. Throw in Super Inframan or something ridiculous. I don't care. <laughs> Super Inframan in Tofu Fury. <laughs> yeah. That would be great. It would be great. There's supposed to be a sequel to Inframan, no joke, called In for a Woman, and they just didn't oh, get around to it. Oh, no wonder. I mean, they were act they were setting it up. That means they really were setting it up. I just saw that movie again for Henshin Men recently, and they were setting it up because they talked about, why isn't there an In for a Woman? <laughs> Where is In for a Woman? That would have been great. Yeah, they wanted to cast like an American female Olympian athlete. They didn't say who, but they just... That was as far as it got, and that Aww, was it. That was unfortunate. That was unfortunate. But, Kaiju lovers, if you would like to get shout-outs and other great perks like this, starting at just $3 a month, join MIFV Max on Patreon. And while you're at it, check out our official merch on TeePublic. And links to all of these things will be in the description of this episode. So always, 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 always check the show notes. All right, and now 
John, I need to let everybody know what the next couple of episodes are going to be here on the Monster Island Phone Vault. So, we will be having, speaking of MIFE Max and Patreon, we will be having our first MIFE Max Patreon-sponsored episode next time with my co-host on the Power Trip podcast, a journey through the Power Rangers franchise, Michael Hamilton, who is also one of the hosts on Kaiju Weekly. He is a massive, massive, massive Power Ranger fan, so he wanted to cover the epic five-part episode Green with Evil from Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. So that's going to be kind of interesting. We've done a little bit of TV talk before here on the Film Vault, but this is a five-parter, so it's basically a movie. So this should be interesting. Did you grow up watching Power Rangers, John? Oh, I love Power Rangers. Uh, only like the first season when when he was still green, then like the second season when he became the White Ranger, I kind of, I you know, I got older and I lost interest. And but yeah, yeah, for a while there, I was pretty whipped over the Power Rangers. Oh well, you should at least give the first couple episodes of the Power Trip a listen. You might, yeah, you might uh, find that a little uh, interesting. We go some places with that show that not a lot of. I don't think any other Power Rangers show really does. I'm really proud of what we've done on there so far. And then, I don't normally advertise these things, but it's kind of a big deal, so I'm going to mention it anyway. Since there is a fifth Wednesday in March, you are getting a fifth Wednesday bonus episode. Because normally we publish episodes after they air here on the island on the second and fourth Wednesdays of the month. But there's a fifth Wednesday. So you're going to get a bonus episode with the Cellcast, and, uh, and in fact, I was actually just on their show recently talking about the Kaiju Wrestling movie Rumble. And I wasn't going to do this, but my new boss here on the island insisted that I do it. We're going to be covering a trio of episodes from Godzilla the series, specifically ones that apparently my new boss has christened the Cameron Winter Trilogy because... Well, he has a controlling share in Monster Island, so he wants us to talk about his episodes. Did you watch that show too, John? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Mm-hmm. And then Amera Kaiju continues next month with another 1950s Americans uh, monster movie classic, 1958's The Blob. I'm actually a big fan of this one. This one's actually in the Criterion Collection which I find really fascinating. <laughs> and that is... Yeah, the- and it's based on a true story. Oh, no! I told, I told Nate tonight. Oh. It's based on a true story. You heard it from me first. Oh, my gosh! I'll definitely have to look into that for that for that episode. I'm sure it'll be in the materials that, the, that Criterion has assembled. And my friend, the founder of Nerd Chapel, Eric Anderson, will be making his return to the island. It'll be his first time here in actually in over a year, just over a year. He was my guest for the momentous episode that we did on Godzilla versus Kong. And we had a little bit of an adventure after we were done with that because... Well, we got a little up close and personal with Kong after that. Drunk Kong, specifically. Dipped into some of that berry juice. Probably shouldn't have. He's got a problem. He's got a problem, but thankfully, thankfully, little Gia was around, so she was able to take care of that problem. Uh I think it's just the celebrity lifestyle. You know, a lot of them, Kong was the 
first famous giant monster and just, you know, he can't hold his liquor. Yeah, unfortunately. It's very unfortunate. Yeah, we have to keep that stuff away from him because, you know, sometimes unfortunate things happen. Thankfully, he's not much of a violent drunk, which is very good. Last thing we need is for him to get into some drunk fisticuffs with some of the other kaiju. Mm. Yeah. Gets a little too much berry juice and suddenly another rematch with Godzilla starts looking like a good idea. Mm -mm. Not good, not good, not good. All right, and no episode of The Film Vault would be complete, John, without some shameless self-promotion. So I'm just going to mention a couple of things really quick here. I've already talked about the power trip, but the other spinoff podcast that is part of the Kaiju Ramen Podcasting Network that I need to make sure I mention is Henshin Men, a podcast about the appreciation of Japanese superheroes and their high-flying and high-kicking adventures, which I co-host with Travis Alexander, who has also appeared several times on this very show. And that is a podcast all about Henshin hero, superhero television shows and movies. We do talk about some movies sometimes. We are currently in the middle of talking about the original Common Rider, 1971. And it is safe for me to say this, and I know the episode will be coming out around the same time as this, but we just recently recorded an episode with the biggest Common Rider fan in the world, quite possibly. Yes, even bigger than Travis. Mr. August Ragone. Yes, we snagged August Ragone for Henshin Men. It was a really fun episode full of lots of great information. I can't wait for all of you to hear it. But I'm done talking about myself, John. What do you have to share with all the kaiju lovers out there? Uh, hopefully, uh, within a few weeks after this episode airs, I should have the uh, second edition of Kong Unmade out. Uh, and it's not like I just added in Godzilla versus Kong and all that. It's actually got a ton of new stuff in it. Each chapter has new information. There's a lot of new entries. We found a lot of old lost films from like the uh, 30s and even the 20s that had giant gorillas in them that are covered. So a lot of new material in the book. Some of and, which uh, you uh, you shared with me to, as research material for a few episodes. Yeah. like Like a certain very infamous one. Was it Peking Man or Mighty Joe Young? I can't remember. No, Yeti. Oh, Yeti. That's right. Yeah, I like Yeti. I like it. Uh, other than the nipple scene. Otherwise, you know, I think it's a pretty good movie. But uh, I have opinions. Listen to the episode. <laughs> I have opinions. Yeah. Now, and then my only other shameless self-promotion that I think listeners of this would like is I did an issue of uh, Lost Films Fanzine Presents Movie Milestones on the Edgar Rice Burroughs Amicus Trilogy of the 70s. Like, oh. He's like, Land That Time Forgot, People That Time Forgot, At the Earth's Core, Warlords of Atlantis, which isn't Edgar Rice Burroughs, but it's kind of, you know, it's from uh, EMI, Amicus, and all them. So, so that's out. You know, it's issue number, what is it, seven? Yeah, issue number seven. Again, Lost Films Fanzine Presents Movie Milestone. So lots of pictures, lots of information on unmade sequels to At the Earth's Core and Land That Time Forgot, stuff like that. So check it out. Mm -hmm. And uh, as usual... Everyone needs to check the show notes for my bibliography. And if you look at past episodes, like I said, almost every single one of them has John's books. Ironically, I did not reference any of John's books because I had John on here. <laughs> and he's not written anything about them. But I promised to send you all of the materials that I used for this episode so that, I don't know, you can do a 50s atomic monster movie book or something. <laughs> yeah, it, it could happen. I mean, I've thought about it, so we'll see. <laughs> All right. 
thank you once again, John, for coming on the show. This was tremendous fun. Tremendous fun. It's always great having you on the show. I had a great time, too. Even if I did have to get the third Matango booster just to get on the island, it was totally worth it. Oh, totally. Yeah, I understand. Just like I said, just watch out for Dr. Dorif. He gave me a shot, too, once. I'm amazed I didn't grow mushrooms in weird places. Yeah. But, you know, we seem to be okay. We seem to be okay. All right. And with that, Jimmy, cue credits. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nate Marchand. If you want to join the discussion and be heard on the show, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Monster Island Film Vault and on Twitter, where our handle is at TheMonsterIsla1. You can subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, and TikTok. Follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASAJimmy and our many other colorful characters using the links in the show notes. The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com. Our theme song is Wanderer on the Offensive, live edit by B33J, Serax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack, Battle with the Colossus, and The Opened Way, Battle with the Colossus, by Koatani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus. All film and audio clips belong to their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and or Podchaser to spread the word about the show. You can also support us by joining MIFV Max on Patreon. The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas media production. Sayonara! Well, it definitely wasn't hard finding you guys when you have a big tent branded with the Heat logo. You can thank Randy for that. He's a hacker with modest Photoshop skills. I see years of working with Senor Hernandez has only softened you toward him. That's because I have not broken Randy yet. Whoa, calm down there, French fry. No need to speak ill of your boyfriend when he's not around. Monique, you and Randy are together? Not everything in the animated series is based on unfounded rumors. Good to know. Speaking of which, Elsie, where are Randy and Nick? They're in your neck of the woods, Nate. Nick was invited to give a lecture to the biology department at Purdue University, Fort Wayne. Oh, my grad school alma mater. And Randy thankfully tagged along to see their computer science department. Huh, Nigel, I can finally have some peace and quiet. I'm glad you and your little yellow robot are happy. How come you didn't go with him, Monique? Someone has to keep H-E-A-T safe when the island security is manned by imbeciles or by a Roy de Croix. Ooh, hot take, sister. To say the least, man. What we wanted to show you was this. Wow! The next Millennium Intelligence Gathering Electronic Liaison app on a tablet! Where do I download it? Greetings. My name is Nigel. Genius billionaire playboy philanthropist. Damn it, Randy. <laughs> Sounds like Randy's been stashing his digital copies of MCU movies on Nigel's hard drive. <laughs>
You won't be laughing when Randy tampers with your friend Jet like this. Just you wait. That's enough, children. Mendel, maneuver Nigel around to show Nade why the beaches are closed. Give me a second. There. Are those what I think they are? Gigantus Vecinus. Yep. Or as Randy likes to call them, Giants. Oh, la la, sacré bleu. Oh. Kind of disappointed I didn't think of it during my broadcast today. Anyway, these were found washed up on the beach just before dawn by the night ship mutant security patrol. They called us in to investigate, and since radioactivity was detected, we sent Nigel to gather samples remotely. Preparing to gather sample. I can do this all day. <sighs> well, at least he hasn't gotten destroyed today. Sorry, I tend to process traumatic events with dad jokes and... Ah! Nigel, no! Ah, Zutalor. Missy. As I was trying to say, we thought these were the mutated Campanotas Vecinas, like the ones that ravaged New Mexico and L.A. in 1954. There are a few of them on the island, but after I examined the samples Nigel brought us, turns out that these aren't quite the same. What do you mean? We contacted Ricky Becker. Who's he? The Kaiju Zookeeper. Anyway, he said all the giants on the island were accounted for. But when we compared the DNA of these insects with what's in the kaiju database, they didn't match. Whoa. The differences are slight, but these giants have been mutated further through genetic manipulation. The changes are too perfect. Well, perfect is a relative term because these mutations killed them. Whoever did this dumped their failed experiment in the ocean and hoped no one would find them. Who do you think could have done it? We don't know, but... It's winter. <sighs> Alright, Miss French Roast. None of us like the new boss. But we have no evidence to prove he's behind this. Then I will find some. You might want to wait on the Mission Impossible shenanigans there, Thomasina Cruz. We don't need you damaging Heat's relationship with the island. He makes a good point. We'll just have to keep investigating. <sighs> Until then, Nate, keep this confidential. Will do. Now as for... Hey, Nick. What's up? How was... Oh? Text me the data. We'll be there ASAP. Here, honey. Take a look at this. I wish we could talk more, Nate, but it looks like an Indiana cryptid is real, so Nick wants us all there to find it and bring it here. You talking about the Beast of Busco? Ah, so you know about Oscar the Turtle. Ha! I grew up in the same county and even know a guy who wrote a stage play about it, so I'm familiar with the local legend. Looks like Oscar's not quite Gamera big, but we'll still need some help capturing it. And with Zilla corralled here on the island, I doubt he'll be able to. Well, if you need transportation and a method of capture, I know Uber's biggest driver. <laughs>